Glory to Jesus Christ and welcome to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast brought to you by Theosis Academy and the Orientale Lumen Foundation. In this podcast, we will feature weekly lectures from the late great Metropolitan Callistos of Diaclea. So please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, today's recording is taken from Metropolitan Callistos Ware's course, Jesus Christ, Yesterday, Today, and Forever. The lecture itself is titled, For Our Salvation. If you enjoy the lecture, you can get unlimited access to the complete course online at theosisacademy.org. Now for Metropolitan Callisto Square. My theme is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What then I propose to do is to talk about the doctrine of Christ according to the Fathers, from the 1st to the 5th century. And my first talk, I will look more generally at the question of our understanding of Christ's person. So my title will be, quoting from the Nicene Creed, For Our Salvation. And the subtitle, why did God become man? Now, I would like to start with a Christian poet. The poets are often the best theologians of all. It would be good if we made greater use of them. And the poet whom I shall choose now is St. Ephraim the Syrian, who lived in the 4th century. But, of course, there are other Christian poets we might call to mind, uh, St. Romanos the Melodist, uh, St. Simeon the New Theologian, Dante, Milton, T.S. Eliot. So here is what St. Ephraim has to say about Christ. Whom have we, Lord, like you? The great one who became small, the wakeful who slept, the pure one who was baptized, the living one who died, the king who abased himself to ensure honor for all. Now, St. Ephraim here, is in emphasizing the fundamental paradox of the person of Christ, that he is both God and man, totally one with God the Father, totally one with us human beings. And so he has a series of Contrasting phrases, the great one became small, the wakeful who slept, the living one who died. And he goes on with a series of other images, the shepherd who became a lamb, the farmer who became a grain of wheat, 
And then perhaps the most moving of all, the mighty one who put on insecurity. So here then is what St. Ephraim is trying to tell us. In Christ, God has become totally human. The creator has become a creature. Our God is also our brother. Many other writers, ancient and modern, speak in the same way of the two contrasting aspects of Christ. From the West, for example, in the early 5th century, the Saint Augustine addresses Christ as Altissime et Proxime, most high and yet most near. Secretissime et Praesentissime, altogether secret and yet altogether present. The Lutheran German theologian who died as a martyr at Nazi hands in the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, sums this up in the telling phrase that Christ is the beyond in our midst. So, in a preeminent and unique manner, Christ shows God to us, he is our window into eternity. And in a preeminent and unique manner, Christ also shows to us what it is to be human. He is the mirror in which we see our own true face. He is totally God, totally human. Who or what is God? Who or what am I? The answer is given by the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I would like to dwell a little more on this paradox of God in Christ and Christ in us. And I would like to take one of the earliest testimonies concerning the Christians by a non-Christian. And this is a letter written by Pliny the Younger, governor of the province of Asia Minor, writing to his personal friend, the Emperor Trajan, about the year 112. And he wants to consult the emperor about the Christians. He confesses that before going to Asia Minor, he knew very little about them. What do they really like, he says. And he continues, they meet in secret. But apart from that, they seem harmless enough. Roman emperors, like autocrats, 
through all the ages, were always very suspicious of secret societies. And then Pliny continues, on a fixed day, it is their habit to assemble before daylight and to sing hymns. And he continues, they sing by turns a hymn to Christ as to God. Now, let's dwell on that phrase. Pliny is quite skeptical about the Christians. He has them tortured. He thinks they are rather boring people, but not in the end particularly harmful. But in this phrase, a hymn to Christ as to God, Pliny has put his finger on the essence of our Christian faith. Christians worship the man Jesus Christ as God. What does this mean? How can a single person be God and man at once? That is going to be my subject in my talks in this series. Let's look now at the central text that expresses our Christian faith. And this is the creed that we recite at every celebration of the Divine Liturgy, the Nicene Creed, that was first formulated by the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council in 325, and then it was revised and expanded by the Second Ecumenical Council, the Council of Constantinople, in 381. The creed is very familiar to all of us, but do we think deeply enough about it? Now, in the creed, in the central paragraph concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, we find two sets of statements. One set on the Godward side of Christ and one set on the human side of Christ. On the Godward side, it is said that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, Lord, and that in the ancient world would have been understood as a divine title. It is said that he is son of God, that he is begotten from the Father, born from the Father before all ages. He is eternal. It is said that he is only begotten, monogenes in Greek, he is unique. It is said that he is true God from true God. That he was born, begotten, but not made. He is uncreated. 
And then, it is said, central affirmation in the Nicene Creed, that he is one in essence with the Father. Homoousios is the Greek word. Co-essential, equal to the Father. Whatever the Father is, the Son is also. And then it is said of Christ, through whom all things were made. Then it is said of Christ, through whom all things were made. He is God's agent in creation. So these statements in the Nicene Creed make it entirely clear that Christ is totally and unreservedly one with God. But then there is the human side, also emphasized in the creed. It is said that this same Christ has come down. He has taken flesh. He has become man. He has suffered, died. So here it is said that as well as being totally and unreservedly one with God the Father, he is totally and unreservedly one with us human beings. He shares in all the fullness of human life. And not only that, he shares in all the fullness of human death. There is a double identification a double solidarity. Not half in half, not 50-50, 50% God, 50% man. No, it is said that he is 100% God and 100% man. Now, A hostile critic might say at this point, you are coming very close to talking nonsense. How could one single person be totally God and totally human? But this is our Christian faith. Through the centuries, People have tried to avoid this fundamental paradox. They have tried to get round it by saying, well, he's not fully God. He's just a superior kind of prophet. Or they've said, he's not fully human. He's just appearing on earth. God looking like a human being, but not really such. However, the great church, the mainstream Catholic and Orthodox tradition, rejects these compromises, and it insists on the fullness of this paradox. 
as Pope Leo the Great said in the middle of the 5th century of Christ, totus in suis, totus in nostris. He is full and complete in what is his own, that is, his Godhead. And he is full and complete in what is ours, that is, in his humanness. Here let me make a little digression. I will dip my toe into the turbid waters of present-day controversy. You will perhaps have noticed that I have sometimes talked about Christ becoming man, and I've sometimes talked about Christ becoming human. Now, here we are up against a difficulty in the English language, of which we are all aware. In most languages, there are two different words, one for a human being and one for a male member of the human race. So, in Greek, you have the word anthropos, which means human being, either male or female, and you have anir, which means a male. In uh, Latin, there is a similar distinction. Homo means a human being, and vir means a male member of the human race. Now, unfortunately, in English language, and this has caused endless trouble, we only have the one word, man. In my youth, it was clearly understood that man meant a member of the human race. This was normal usage among educated persons. Today, the situation is more difficult. There are many people who say, if you use the word man for a member of the human race, that is offensive to women. They feel excluded. So today, people tend to understand the word man as meaning simply a male. And if you want to talk about a human being, then you must not use just the word man. Personally, I am content with either usage. Either man means human or man means a male. But what we need to do is to be quite clear in what way we are using the word. Now, this question clearly is relevant to the way we understand the creed. In the traditional translation of the Nicene Creed, it says, For us men and for our salvation, he became man. Now, the Greek there is anthropos in both clauses, not anir. So, if you wanted to use inclusive language, 
you would need to say, for us humans and for our salvation, he became human. Now, various ecumenical bodies, I will not be more specific, have put forward a translation of the creed which is misleading, potentially heretical. They say we must not affirm for us men because that seems to exclude women. So let us say for us all and for our salvation or just for us and for our salvation. But they are content to leave the second half of the clause, he became man as it is. That's all right, they say, he became a male. However, this distorts the true meaning of the creed. The creed is not concerned with the maleness of Christ. It is concerned with his humanness. And the people who drafted the creed, the Holy Fathers of Nicaea and Constantinople, weighed every word that they were using. If they wanted to say, for us all, dihimas pantas, they could have said that, but they didn't. They said, dihimas tus anthropos, for us men, or for us humans. And they had a careful balance between anthropos in the first part, for us humans, and he became anthropos, en anthropicen. So the creed is not talking about the maleness of Christ. The creed is talking about his humanness, his solidarity with us human beings, whether we are male or female. So this is an objectionable translation of the creed to say for us he became man. Either say for us men he became man or for us humans he became human. But balance the phrases. The Holy Fathers knew what they were doing. There is a Chinese saying, what would you do with if you were emperor of the whole world endowed with absolute power? And the answer is, I would make people use words accurately. I cannot remember who else it was who said, I do not mind deliberate dishonesty. What I object to is muddled use of language. Well, I don't entirely agree with that, but I take his point. Let us use words with care. Let us polish our tools. Let us use them as if they were the surgical instruments in an operation, as if they were a dentist's drill. If the dentist is inaccurate, he causes great pain. So, if the theologian is inaccurate, he endangers his own salvation and that of other people. Now, language is for the purpose of communication. And if there are some people who find the traditional use of the word man to be offensive, 
and they feel that this excludes them, well then, I am content to use inclusive language. So I will talk about Christ being fully human. He was, of course, also a male. He could not have been both male and female if he was to be truly human, and in fact he was male. Why he was male is a difficult question to give a simple answer. But the Creed and the Holy Fathers in general are interested not in his maleness, but in his humanness. Once a potential graduate student came to see me and said he wanted to write a doctoral dissertation on the teaching of the Greek fathers concerning the maleness of Christ. A very interesting topic, I replied to him, but it's going to be a rather short thesis because they did not discuss this, save on very rare occasions. Of course, the maleness of Christ is important in the symbolic scheme of a Christian worship and prayer. We speak of Christ as the bridegroom, and we speak of the church as feminine in its relation to Christ the bridegroom. We speak equally of the human soul as feminine in relation to Christ. These symbolic usages are certainly important. Well, having dipped my toe into the turbid waters of controversy, I now quickly withdraw it, and I return to the creed. The creed says nothing about Christ's maleness, though, of course, Christians believe that he was male. It speaks about his humanness. Now, let's look at this paradox. This paradox of affirming that Christ is totally divine and totally human. Why do we say this? The reason is very clear from the creed itself. The creed says, for us humans and for our salvation. For our salvation, if we affirm that Christ is totally divine and totally human, this is because the double affirmation of his two natures is essential to our salvation. This is what we seek from God. This is what every religion offers in one form or another. Salvation. To be made whole. To be rescued from our condition of moral weakness and sin. Now what is the connection between Christology and soteriology, between the doctrine of Christ's person and the doctrine of our human salvation. There are a number of different ways in which we may look at the saving work of Christ. 
We may think of him, for example, as teacher, the one who disperses the darkness of ignorance and grants us light and illumination. That is true. That is an aspect of Christ that was particularly emphasized by Christian writers in the second century, the apologists, people like Justin Martyr. But this leaves out of account the tragedy of sin. We do not simply need to be instructed. We need to be rescued. So another way of thinking of Christ is to think of him as the sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, says St. John the Baptist in the first chapter of the fourth gospel. Christ is the sacrificial victim, the paschal lamb the atoning sacrifice offered for our sins. That goes far more closely to the heart of the matter. Or we may think of Christ in terms of ransom. As Christ himself says, he came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. We are prisoners, prisoners of our fallen condition. Christ grants us liberation. He sets us free. This was something that St. Paul felt very strongly. Or we can use the language of substitution. Christ has done something for us that we could not do by ourselves, unaided. He has died instead of us. This is underlined in the 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says that he who knew no sin has become sin for us, that in him we might become righteousness. Often this idea of substitution is associated with evangelical Protestantism, but in fact it is truly scriptural, it is found in the Fathers, it is part also of our Orthodox understanding of Christ's saving work. Then again, we may think of Christ in terms of victory, as it says in Ephesians 4, 8, he has led captivity captive. We may think in terms of a cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil, of light and darkness. And Christ has won the victory in this cosmic battle. 
the victory of the cross. When he said on the cross, it is finished, that is not a cry of despair, of a hopeless resignation. Christ is not just saying it's all over. He is saying it is finished in the sense of it is completed, it is fulfilled. And what is completed? What is fulfilled? The victory of good over evil. The victory of Christ the Saviour over sin and death. That's the image we find very strongly in St. Arrhenius in the second century. Or again, we may think of Christ as the supreme example of suffering love. An example which is deeply attractive. As Christ himself says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw everyone to be. We see on the cross compassion, love without limits. The forces of evil, the hatred, of despair, do all they can to destroy Christ but he still remains love. That perhaps is the true meaning of the image of victory. We should not think in terms of aggressive militarism. We should rather think in Christ on the cross and at the resurrection, we see the victory of suffering love. God is never so strong as when he is most weak. Now, all these models have their place in our tradition. We should not concentrate one-sidedly, narrowly, upon only one of them. But there is another model I would like to emphasize, which perhaps underlies all the examples I've given so far, and that is the idea of participation or solidarity. Christ saves us by becoming totally what we are. He saves us through sharing, through participation in our human condition. He saves us through solidarity and identification. St. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know, he says, the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. For your sakes, he who was rich became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. The riches of Christ 
are his divine glory. The poverty of which the apostle speaks is our fallen, broken human condition. Christ shares in that fallen, broken human condition. And through his act of sharing, he enables us to participate in his divine glory. As it says in Hebrews 4.15, he is tempted in everything exactly as we are, only without sinning. And this act of total participation enables us to be, as it says in 2 Peter 1.4, partakers of the divine nature. St. Irenaeus sums this up by saying, in his unbounded love, he was made what we are, that we might become what he is. And St. Athanasius of Alexandria in the fourth century expresses this yet more sharply. I will quote the Greek, because it's better than the English. He was made human that we might be made God. He was hominized that we might be deified. He became incarnate that we might be engodded. Now, if we follow out this model of sharing, of participation, we shall begin to understand why the Church has felt it necessary to insist upon this double fullness in Christ. Why it was necessary for he who is totally God to become totally human. There are two principles of salvation that we should always remember. First, only God can save. Second, salvation has to reach the point of human need. Only God can save. A prophet or a righteous man cannot be the saviour of the world. Salvation is a divine act. Only God can rescue us from our fallen condition. Only God can cross the abyss that our sin has set between us and the realm of heaven. So, if Jesus Christ is to be our Savior, he must needs be fully God. No one less than God can save us. But then we come to the second principle. Salvation has to reach the point of human need. Here we find 
the reason for the incarnation, why God has become incarnate. God does not save us from a distance. He saves us by coming close to us, by associating himself with us in the most intimate of all possible unions. He saves us by becoming himself one of us. He does not save us, as it were, from the outside. He saves us from within by being exactly with us. If he was not God, he could not save us. But being God, he has chosen to save us by entering in his unbounded love into the totality of our human condition. As I said earlier, into all the fullness of human life, and into all the fullness of human death. So, as man, he died on the cross. But it was not only the man who died on the cross. God died on the cross. Because Christ is God. And then, on the third day, the God-man, because he is God, rose again. Because he is God, death could not destroy him. He is stronger than death. That is the meaning of the resurrection. Love is more powerful than hatred. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness does not swallow it up, as it says in the prologue to the fourth gospel. So there we find the reason for our fundamental faith in Jesus Christ, our Saviour, as fully God, fully human, our Creator and our Brother. That is why as Pliny rightly understood, Christians sing hymns to the man Christ as to God. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast hosted by theosisacademy.org. If you enjoyed the lecture, you can purchase Metropolitan Callistos' complete course online at theosisacademy.org. We look forward to next week when we will release another lecture from His Eminence. Until then, enjoy your weekend and God bless.